Welcome back to the Cycling Tips Podcast, everybody. I'm Kaylee Fretz, and we have a special episode for you today. James, I'm just going to throw straight to you. What are we talking about today? Oh, so much pressure. Uh, we are talking about SRAM's new rival ETAP Axis electronic group set, wireless, of course. Uh, we're going to go dive into the ins and outs of what this is, what it isn't, what it works with, what it doesn't work with, what it costs, what it's going to come with, so on and so forth. We're going to just go ahead and jump right in. And as always, uh, we do these sort of episodes on a somewhat regular basis. And I've said this before, we partner up with SRAM for this episode, but the kind of ground rules are that we ask whatever we want to, uh, which is why James is here. If that wasn't the rules, I don't think he'd come. <laughs> so that's that's how we operate in these special podcasts. And with that, let's get on with the episode. So we do have some special guests with us here today. Why don't you both introduce yourselves so listeners out there can put a, a name to a voice. Hi, I'm Kate Paulson. I'm the road brand manager at SRAM. And I'm Paul Cantor, a road director at SRAM. All right. Well, welcome to both of you. I'm going to throw it back to James, actually. I don't feel particularly useful in this episode, actually. James, uh, it's all on you now. James, where are we, where are we kicking off? What's our first question? Why are, th why are these things always on me? I feel like I'm, I'm always <laughs> the one shouldering everything with these things. Anyway. Because you have the list of questions. That's why. <laughs> which, I, which I sent to you. And anyway. I mean, I could read your questions and pretend that they were mine, but then I'm just stealing your work. So <sighs> I'll let you do it. Man. All right. Well, if you're going to put it that way. All right. Paul, we are going to start with kind of like the 10,000 foot view, I guess. Uh, can you first and foremost explain what exactly is rival access? I mean, I think it's pretty self-explanatory. Uh, it's the third wireless electronic road group set from SRAM. Um, but what is it exactly and what is it not? And uh, I guess put in more specific terms, what is shared with force and red access? And what changes has SRAM made so that rival can hit the desired price point? Yeah, that's a great one. Uh, so Rival is the third um, installment of our access story. Um, you know, we started with Red and Force, which rolled out two years ago. And we always had a vision for bringing it down at least to the Rival price point. And the team spent the last couple of years working through that. Um, you know, what's what it is, is probably most exciting for SRAM is that having been the last to um, the market with an electronic drivetrain solution after Shimano and Campy. We're the first to bring uh, electronic drivetrain solution to the middle of the market. And I think uh, those customers are best served by, by what this product offers. You know, you guys as editors, I'd say, often will write about how premium technology is great, but really some of these middle, uh, middle of the market type bikes could really use this technology. So that's what we've been focused on. Of course, like you said, it, it, it loses some things in order to achieve a price point. Uh, most of that comes in, in material changes, but at its heart, it's still very much a, an ETAP access group. Uh, wireless, as you mentioned, super intuitive shifting, left is easy, right is hard. You still have um, capability to access that through the app if that's your thing. And if you don't want to, you just want to ride your bike, you can do that too. Um, you know, we went to an aluminum crank, so you gain a little bit of weight there, but um, stiffness is, is super good. Allows us to bring the price point down. New controls up at the handlebar. Um, they work the same, but the hood shape's a little smaller. 
Let's see how the market responds to that. Early on, the response has been favorable, uh, but in order to um, reduce cost and simplify the mechanism, you don't have blip ports to put in external um, shifters in there. So you give that up and you also forego the contact point adjustment that uh, we have in the more premium offerings. So there's a handful of uh, small things in the rear derailleur, for example, we use a different clutch mechanism, um, a slightly less expensive clutch mechanism instead of the orbit clutch that we use in, um, or orbit damper rather, that we use in uh, red and force. Uh, but the overall ride experience is very, very similar to the experience that you get at force and red in our opinion. And um, we're really excited about what that brings to customers. So basically if I'm, if I'm recapping correctly, essentially you have uh, different materials and, and some more weight. Um, you have fewer adjustments and I guess, you know, a little bit less uh, opportunity for customization uh, and you don't have any expansion ports. Um, but aside from that, as far as the electronic bits are concerned, are those all completely shared between the three group sets now? Yeah, the motors and the chips are, are identical. And, you know, that scale allows us to drive the price down as well. But that all is also really key to making sure that the, the experience is what we want it to be. So other than that, um, like with the cassette and chain and chain rings, for example, is there any difference in terms of the tooth profiling? The profile is such, no, you know, on paper there's not, but they're made of different materials. You know, we go from, you'll step down from a fully machined cassette to sort of a stamped cassette or steel chain rings instead of aluminum chain rings. So that does impact uh, the parts some in that regard. But, uh, you know, the profile the same is, is intended to be the same, but it does come out differently through the manufacturing process, if that makes sense. Sure, sure. So having written it now myself for the last few weeks, um, I mean, I can go ahead and confirm that, uh, I mean, this all makes sense because the shifting performance really does seem to be completely indistinguishable from force and red. So it, it does strike me that, you know, if that was the goal from SRAM's R&D department to, to deliver that, then that certainly seems to be the case. Do you have any sense as to how many of the people who were using the higher end access versions were actually taking advantage of things like the, the bite point adjustment and the expansion port and stuff like that? Like, so, I mean, you don't have those available on rival access, but I mean, how many people were even using that stuff anyway? Um, the expansion ports, you know, a fair number, particularly on uh, uh, triathlon bikes or, you know, people that were putting extensions onto drop-bar bikes and, you know, using them in, in that configuration. Um, more than, more than uh, I had thought, it, it's a decent number. It's not, it, it's in the 20% range. Uh, I haven't looked at the numbers more recently. So a decent number there. Um, you know, on the contact adjust, uh, it's difficult for me to know. I would say it's um, very personalized. Some people are very particular about where their contact point is and where their reach is. And a lot of people just go about the world fine. They don't even adjust their reach. People still don't know it exists. It's a constant communication battle for us. Like you need to put a big red sticker on the top of the hood that says brake lever adjustment here. We do, but I worry about seeing a lot of people out riding with big red stickers left on them. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you could make it an accessory, right? You could you could have it like a like a branded SRAM little red streamer flag on there or something, right? It's a marketing opportunity. Yeah, I think some people are, are done with uh, seeing too much SRAM branding. 
the lack of difference in in sort of blindfolded performance for lack of a better term right if you if you don't have if you if you maybe don't blindfold yourself and go for a bike ride but if you could do that you wouldn't really be able to tell the difference between this group and a group that is what uh like close to twice the the price or if not more how do you kind of deal with that from a from like a marketing perspective almost maybe this is a question for for kate more uh like how do you then serve to fully differentiate between these different groups how do you tell a story where you're, where you're trying to get people to i mean you guys are trying to get people to buy the more expensive ones right like that's that's really what you want but if there's no functional difference in 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 shifting that's a that becomes a much more difficult story to tell maybe i can tackle it from the product side first and and kate, kate can embellish there our test engineers would tell you that there are differences you know and that they're, they're meaningful um, which is great. That's what they're meant to do to identify sort of how we're progressing. The um, part of that though, Kelly, is not really a challenge for us. We we know that if we want to expand our road business and bring more people into the SRAM family, we had to offer a really premium experience at the middle of the market. And we failed. I don't know that we failed, but we've come short of that in, in years past. Um, so we, we really wanted to work hard in delivering the promise here, you know? Um, and, and I, th I think that's fine. There's plenty of people that want to have the shinier product, the lighter product. And if we're just talking about shift performance, why shouldn't the middle of the market have great shifting? I like that as a, as a philosophy, I think. Yeah. That makes a lot of sense. I mean, rival is obviously designed to be, you know, the, the third tier for the whole access range. Um, but some of the changes that you've instituted on this, I'd argue, are, are things that people would like at the upper end, too. Um, like you were talking about the, the different hood shape and the, the kind of lever, lever uh, kind of girth, I guess. And because you've taken out some of that stuff, the, the lever has sort of a, a lower profile hump at the top and it has sort of a smaller uh, overall girth or circumference. And, you know, that is something that people have been asking about uh, every now and then for force and red. Um, is it safe to assume that with all the acts, as with all the access stuff that, you know, all these things can be mixed and matched as you want. Um, so you're proposing that if I wanted to put rival controls on my force bike, could I do that? Or vice versa? Yeah, absolutely. Um, that is correct. So say you had a rival bike, but you were really compelled to have accessory ports. So you wanted to put force shifters on there. You could do that. Um, if you had a real desire to have a, a different hood shape that was more similar to rival, you could use rival with the other components higher up. Absolutely. That's interchangeable. And then you can also add in the mountain bike components too, right? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, a couple of weeks ago, we just had uh, well, what we think was a pretty exciting launch for GX access. Uh, the response from the market uh, has been great so far. And you can bleed in that electronic mid-price point uh, Eagle group into a rival group and create what we call that mullet configuration. So you've got a 1050 cassette on a gravel bike. And that's been really popular where we all live in Colorado. Turns out there's a lot of up here. A lot of up. <laughs> yeah, I was I was reflecting on that um, over the weekend, riding up through Gold Hill, you know, one of the popular gravel riding routes up here. And just thinking how, you know, even three years ago, everyone would be on a road bike and it's muddy, there's braking bumps, there's a ton of climbing. It's just not the ideal bike to have a super enjoyable, you know, 
few hours out, out on the bike, you can do it. And, and we all did it. Right. But now when, when I go out and ride, I see, you know, one in every three people is on one of those mullet group sets. And I just know it's, it's way more comfortable for riding around here. So it's cool to see that change happen just in a few years. I like riding a mullet group set when my uh, friends aren't so that when we hit some of the steeper <laughs> sections, I just drop it into the 50 and laugh at them. That's what I do. <laughs> I'm very rude though. I mean, I, I, I am definitely of the demographic. He was getting progressively older and slower. I mean, my late four, I, I guess I am officially in my, well, I guess I'm still in my mid forties anyway. Um, but you know, it really wasn't that long ago when, you know, we would have done a ride like that. And on a steeper pitch anywhere around here, we would have been happy or I would have been happy to have, you know, like a 34 tooth chain ring up front and like an 1126 cassette out back. And that seemed like plenty. It's like, oh, my God, this is so generous. Time, times, have anymore. times have changed. Times have changed. <laughs> Give me that 4450. That's what I want. That's what I want on my bike. Yeah. 4650 <laughs> if I'm feeling really spicy, you know. Uh -huh. Uh -huh. Speaking of, so, I mean, we have a, you know, again, we have this third tier access group set now. Um, and I think historically, SRAM has always been really good about trickling down higher end technologies and features to lower end options without really diluting a lot of the core functionality. Um, with an electronic group set, though, is it is it easier to do that sort of thing or is it harder or is it just different? James, it's more the last one. It's just different. Um you know, we're maturing in that regard. Uh, we're on the second generation of our ETAP platform. So we had ETAP, then we had ETAP Access, we brought out RED and FORCE. So as a company, we've learned a lot and we're maturing there. So it is becoming easier internally. But, um, you know, people think about scale. The scale for chips and getting better pricing and motors is massive. It substantially outstrips sort of the bicycle market um, when you think of the number of iPhones and devices of that nature that are sold. The number of chips we use is really small. Um, so we're not able to leverage that as best as we would like in terms of pricing. But in terms of design, um, you know, we're learning a lot there and it's becoming easier. But I don't think it's one's easier than the other. They're different. Uh, mechanical components have different challenges to driving cost out and maintaining performance than electronic components do. Both are, are challenging. So would you say then, though, that is it is it harder to adapt to this sort of higher end technology to a lower price point than it is to just take a technology and just throw a bunch of money at it and just make it expensive? Um, yeah, I mean, in some regards, that's what the first generation of Red was, you know, or Red ETAP rather. You know, we, we knew we wanted to be in that and we wanted to be great and we we're able to spend money there. Uh, and I think that's say Formula One cars is sort of an extreme example. You just throw a bunch of money and you make them really fast and stay on the ground and, and you know, protect people. It's awesome. But the reality of scaling that down to your Nissan is, is really hard. Um, so, yeah, it, it was always a vision. You know, same thing with gearing. We think people, people and brake power. No one's asking for harder gears or less brake power. And everybody through the market wants a better ride experience. So how do we take that and scale it down um, and across the marketplace? I, I would just like to, to toss in a, a uh, I guess, an alternative viewpoint on that, Paul, because I will, I will say, Kaylee, I know you get these too. Abby, I think you do too. Uh, we do hear from plenty of people actually who do want the uh, different 
or older brake technology. Let's just put it that way. Uh, <laughs> the rim brake? Yes. That, I, we I, don't use I, those words I believe it's anymore. called the 700C mechanical disc brake, Paul. <laughs> well, James, you know my history. Um, <laughs> I've, I've seen pictures of this rim brake. Um, uh, yeah, you know... Uh, and I don't want to say, I don't want to say they're wrong. You know, if that's what you like, that's what you like. You're not wrong. That's what you like. Okay. But when you stack up all the data, um, disc brakes outperform in every aspect. It doesn't mean that everybody or every customer rider um, likes that experience. But in terms of performance, safety, and reliability, they win every time. Uh, and just to clarify, I mean, so if you haven't picked up already, Rival Access is disc only. There is no rim brake option. Um, but as far as the caliper itself goes, and we were talking earlier about, you know, kind of trickling down features from from Force and Red. Uh, I had a conversation with you not that long, not that long ago, I think. And, and I'm pretty sure if I remember correctly that you had said that uh, the caliper itself, as far as the al aluminum forgings, it's, it is exactly the same as Force and Red, right? No, um, it is a, it is a no, new, it's not. It is a new caliper. Um, the most notable difference would be the bleed port in the caliper. It doesn't have that bleeding edge attachment, so you can't just snap the syringe in um, when you and, and sort of open it up the way you do on the force and red level. So you have to uh, remove the bleed plug and then screw the syringe in, sort of more. Uh, I don't want to say old school style, but the way the original um, bleeding system worked. And that is one of, you know, that's one of those small details. And there's a hundred of these where we have to make that decision to remove that feature uh, in order to lower the cost, but it doesn't impact the performance. So we go, we want, we really focus on how do we reduce the number of decisions the rider has to make. In this case, the mechanic has to make a new decision. Um, and that's the, that's the choice we had to make. Okay. So, it, uh, long, long answer. It is a new caliper. The piston and gland geometry is the same, but the caliper itself is new and the bleed board is different. Okay. Fair enough. Um, seeing as how we've talked a lot about price on this thing, what is the price point of this, of rival access anyway? Because I mean, this is obviously a new group set for SRAM. Um, and you know, this is the first real third team. Actually, I'm trying to think. I guess Campagnolo had Chorus EPS, or for them, it was a it was a third tier electronic group set. But as far as SRAM or Shimano goes, this is the first time we're seeing electronic at anywhere near this sort of level in the market. Um, so where does this sit, really? I mean, I guess you know, kind of in the hierarchy of of SRAM or Shimano, where where are people going to find Rival Access? Okay, do you have retail pricing? <laughs> I do. Yeah, it um it depends on configuration. You know, uh, $1,500 would, would sit in the middle if you're going to go two by with the power meter. It's um, $1,639 US, um, $2,454 Australian. But if you build up a, a one by rival build with no power meter, it gets you down to um, just under $1,200 US. So it, it's hard for us to give a straight answer based on configuration, but um, that is an affordable price point. And if you look at a lot of the OE bikes that this will be available on, um, you can see, you know, just getting a really, really nice carbon fiber bike with nice wheels, nice components, electronic shifting and disc brakes, um, easily less than, than $5,000. So yeah, it's still a lot of money for a lot of people for bike parts, but it's, it's at a whole new price point for electronic. So is it kind of more akin to like 
what force mechanical used to be, or is it kind of analogous to like Altegra mechanical? Like where, where does it sit relative to other stuff that people are already familiar with? Yeah, that's a great one. Cause I think, I think people think of, oh, it's the third tier. So it's right all the way down here. It, it, it's not, it's more analogous to force mechanical, or if you have to use the uh, Altegra mechanical. Um, and that's really the part of the market that we're going after with this today. So it's not entry-level product. We're not saying it's a cheap group set. It's a really high-performing group set at a, at a more achievable price point than we've ever seen for this technology. But it's in that Altegra mechanical, force mechanical replacement. When you get to the one buy, as, as Kate just laid out, pricing-wise, it, it's, getting, uh, it's getting pretty compelling, though, in sort of $1,200, $1,300 retail price for a group set. And one of the things that you mentioned just now, Kate, I feel like you just said like the magic P word. You said something about power. So that's something that we haven't talked about with this yet because Rival Access does actually now have its own power meter option. So what does that look like? Is it the same as what we've seen on Force and Red or you know, is it different? What are we looking at? I think this is one of the cool things about this group set when it comes to bringing technologies down, making them more accessible. Um, you know, power... When Abby and I raced bikes together years and years ago, you know, power meters were super finicky, hard to hard to get. You know, you had to like special order an SRM. You had to have a coach to help you interpret the data. It was only for like a real small segment of riders, and you had to invest a lot in it. Um, but now that's changed so much. I think due to a variety of factors. Um, you know, you you look at Zwift and the number of people who are casually throwing out the you know ftp and and that sort of thing is is amazing there's like grandmas talking about ftp it's awesome um so power has has become a lot more um relevant of, of a tool to to people you don't need to use it but more people are using it and so with rival we have a power meter option that is um is, is really high high quality you know all based on cork technology and um, very reliable and, and accurate, and uh, you can upgrade if, if you buy a, a rival group set um, on, a, say, an OE bike, you can upgrade it for just 250 bucks um, to the power meter version. So it's um, very, very accessible, high quality power measurement that, that comes with rival. It's amazing how fast that market has changed, right? 250 bucks for a, for a power meter add-on. I mean... Yeah, SRM was what, like $2,000 not that long ago? Yeah, literally, I, this is my first time speaking, so hello, I, I am here. But <laughs> when you just were talking about retail price for a full group set, including a power meter at $1,600, first thing that popped in my head was like, oh man, my first SRM power meter that I bought used was $1,600. And I remember it didn't work. And in order to get it to work, I had to like ship it to the SRM headquarters and then get it back like a month later. <laughs> and like, that was, but that was just how it, my coach Colby Pierce, he was like, you have to have power. This is the only way that you can have powers with this situation. So it's crazy how much it's changed. And I think that's just a testament to how, how hard the teams worked and what the market demands as well. Today you can get, uh, you know, in that range of $1,600, an entire rival electronic wireless group with power. Nice. I mean, it wasn't really all that long ago. I, I remember 
kind of singing the virtues of yeah, it's a SRAM Rival 22 mechanical rim brake group set, which if I remember correctly, was somewhere around the neighborhood of like a thousand bucks, you know, ages ago now. And, you know, comparatively speaking, we're talking about $1,600 now for a wireless electronic transmission with a power meter. So that seems pretty good. Um, as far as the power meter itself goes, uh, are we talking dual-sided, single-sided? Is it spider-based, spindle-based? You know, what what is it exactly? There's some cool technology behind it. Um, Paul, you can probably talk a little bit about the development because I think it was a neat project. Just the challenge to figure out, okay, how do we integrate a power meter into a drivetrain? It's not an afterthought. It's not a, a bump that gets bolted onto your crank. It's, it's really a part of the drivetrain development was figuring out how to incorporate a high quality power meter into this group set. Yeah, for sure. I mean, I still miss um, winding my cat eye cable around my brake hose and up to my handlebar. It is something really nice. There was an art to that, Paul. I, there was an art to that. Th that was the mark of a good mechanic. Don't get me wrong. <laughs> I'm not dismissing it and exactly finding the right size zip tie to make it look just so. But um, that said, everything's moved on and people are really pushing for a clean looking uh, product and they're paying for that. And, you know, so that was one of the elements there. Um, our OE customers want to see power come standard on bikes. And if it's going to be on the bike, it should look clean and integrated. So the team took all of that feedback and, and figured out a way to incorporate it into the spindle in the bottom bracket and um, embed it in there, make it still easy to, to work with. Uh, you can just take this little slug out and replace the battery, lasts about a year, and uh, put that back in. And then it just fits within your, your world seamlessly. You know, if you're Zwifting at home, you, you've now got power in, integrated into the crank, or if you're out hopefully on the road having a good time, same thing there. Um, and then work through our access app and send data to your Garmin or your Wahoo, et cetera, any, any of the great head units that are out there today. So um, it was really a, a, a challenge, but it's a, a maturing of pro um, product and technology in the same way the whole group is that allows us to bring it down to this price point. Cool. So 250 bucks sounds like a pretty good deal, all things considered, especially, especially as compared to a, a $1,600 used non-functional SRM that you have to send back. <laughs> Sounds like quite the bargain, I have to say. I feel like we haven't seen a, a spindle-based power meter in a little while. When was the last time we saw one of those? Uh, I mean, Rotor still does one, and you know, Easton had one for oh, a yes, while. Yeah, Rotor. There, yeah. there was that DIY kit that that I wrote a little something about not too long ago that I, I strongly advised against people drilling holes in their spindles. Um, yeah, we, we do too for the... Well, that should be on the rankle. <laughs> <laughs> Um, let, let's talk about gearing because recently SRAM has added a bunch of pretty wide range of gear options to both force and red. Um, given rivals place in the hierarchy, my guess is that it is kind of aimed more at the everyday rider as opposed to red. That's kind of more for competition and force. It's kind of, I guess, more enthusiast based, I suppose. So what are we looking at with rival? To some degree, that's true. But what I think is great about Rival 2 is that, you know, when you look at someone who's just coming up like a college kid or someone who, who wants, you know, a, a electronic group for racing, you know, to put on their like CAD 12 or, or whatever, like Rival still is, is a great group for them too. You get killer technology at a price point that's, um, you know, that's more accessible. So I, I 
don't, you know, ever want people to feel like, oh, Rival is just for this, you know, everyday type of rider. It certainly is, but it's for a whole, it's for a whole lot of people. Um, gearing wise, yeah, there, there's no pro gearing with these gigantic, gigantic chain rings for it because really you don't need those unless you're over in Flanders right now, actually racing your bike. Um, but, uh, yeah, we, we do have, um, a more, more modern gearing that just is suited for the type of riding that, you know, people can enjoy riding all day, climbing a lot, um, riding a drop bar off road on multiple surfaces. So there is, um, you know, you, you have a harder, harder, hard gear and easier, easy gear, and then more steps in between with, with our gearing system. You know, James, I'd, I'd add to that when we rolled out, you know, this new gearing, so the, the 10 tooth start on the cassette, for example, and then the, the smaller chain ring sizes, you know, the goal was to move that, that gearing to the back of the bike. Cause we could do that. Cause we added a cog. And obviously we had a lot of anxiety. We were going to upend what was the traditional um, gearing scenario. And we, we really have seen the uptake be tremendous. We thought the 50 tooth chainring size that we offer in red and force was going to be the dominant specification or, or request out the gate. And it really hasn't been. It's the 48 tooth. And I think at the, at the outset of this um, discussion, you know, James mentioned that uh, he was enjoying easier gears as he's enjoying an easier life. And, um, you know, that's consistent. Uh, we see people, you know, take to that just fine. And yeah, we, we offer, we offer the pro gearing up more recently because the UCI requires us to sell what we race and that's totally fine. And, um, Pete, the general response to that has been, Hey, thanks. That's great. I'll stick with my 48. So what are the cassette options here? I guess, what are the cassette and chainring options then? Yeah. So the chainring, the chainring options are a 4633 in two by and a 4835. And then we have a 1030 uh, cassette and a 1036 cassette. And then, then we have the, you know, the other cassettes from, uh, that are at force and red are interchangeable in there. So if you're looking for something in between, you know, you still have that 1033, for example, so you can, you can put that in if that's more, more suitable for your terrain, for example, that's fine. I mean, that works for me, obviously, because I'm not running. <laughs> I, I will not, I will not be doing an everything world record attempt anytime soon or an everything period. Uh, let's just to make that very, very clear. Uh, or even base camp for that matter. Um, where can people expect to see rival access group sets on complete bikes? I mean, I'm, I'm assuming that SRAM has coordinated a rollout for all this stuff on a bunch of OEM partners. So wh where, where are we going to find these? Yeah, um, we have uh, basically any, any, any major OEM will have a, a rival bike available. Um, you know, looking at some of the, the bigger brands for, um, you know, models close to or at our embargo date too. We know it's really frustrating to have to wait for bike parts or wait for a complete bike that you're excited about. The, the current supply situation is, is of course, making everyone in the industry have to, to work harder for this, but we want riders to be able to see a group set that they want, get stoked about it and be able to go buy it pretty soon. Yeah, I think for us, it'd be the broadest offering of road components across uh, bike supplies that, that we've ever had on the roadside. Um, you know, for many years, even for us, you'd have a friend 
and more of an acquaintance who would want to buy a SRAM bike and they'd go, oh, I went to the bike shop and it was hard to find one. And this, uh, this is really, I think, we've been coming to the road market for many years now. And I think this is us finally arriving. Interesting. I mean, from a, yeah, if, if, I'm, if I'm sort of reading between the lines here, it sounds like this is a, uh, going to be a successful OE group set for you guys. We're going to see a lot of bikes. What in the just sub five K range, 3,500 to $5,000 sounds like maybe would, would be this, the sweet spot there. We're going to see a whole lot of bikes. That's absolutely right. Showing up with rival now. Yeah, correct. Kelly. Yeah. Super exciting. I think we, we, man, we're just incredibly lucky that well, all of us bicycles typically fall on the right side of these sort of issues. So thankful that that's what we've chosen to, to do as our careers. And then we're rolling out a really exciting product into a market that's super energized and interested in, in riding a bike. So, um, it's, it's really great convergence of things. So fingers crossed. We don't have any more canal issues here. <laughs> I'll, di I'll <laughs> dig that boat out myself. <laughs> that, that would be a great picture, Paul. Just, you know, seeing you out there with a shovel. That'd be awesome. I, I would, I would pay for that. You're going to get um, you your rival bike. <laughs> James, James, I want to ask the next question. Oh, okay. Okay. Question. Right. Cause I've, I've got a whole because bunch more Kaylee. Don't worry. I, I know I, I got the list in front of me. I'm just stealing your question here because this one's, this one is personal for me. Uh, my personal road bike is has the greatest group of all time, which is red 22. Uh, and you'll never convince me otherwise. <laughs> and you know, I'm, I'm watching this sort of inexorable slide into wirelessness and electronics and all these things. And I'm a curmudgeon. And so I must ask, is this a sign that, that SRAM is essentially all in on wireless and, and, and how long am I going to be able to buy replacement parts for my sweet, sweet red 22 mechanical group? Uh, so do I have like two years, five years? How, how long I got here? I'm going to just mark this off on my question list. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so as, as, as covered and then we'll cover it. So, uh, well, Katie, how long are you going to be able to get things for your red 22 group? Uh, you know, a little while longer. I mean, we're for that to support it. We, I think, SRAM has some of the best product support in the industry. So, you know, were you to have a problem that, or, or more importantly, a, a consumer, because uh, you have your backdoor channels of making sure your best bike ever <laughs> maintains itself. But yeah, that, that, you know, we'll continue to support that in the marketplace. I think what you're probing on is, you know, where, where does mechanical land now that we've brought electronic down to another price point? Um, so I'll be clear, we're all in on electronic and hydraulic. Um, we think it brings uh, a whole feature set to consumers that are better, uh, better served by these solutions. That said, it doesn't mean we're all out on mechanical. It just means we're all in on electronic and hydraulic. Uh, we, we set these plans out many years in advance and we locked the teams into developing these uh, to make sure that we're, we're putting out a great product. We continue to listen to the market. And if the market says, uh, you know, hey, there's still pull for a mechanical um, variant in, in this area, then, you know, we've got to consider what we do with that. So you're saying that Kaylee making a personal quest right now is maybe not enough to spur a, a, a development <laughs> cycle within SRAM? Um, probably not. Not, not. But <laughs> what, if, what, if he writes, what if he writes a really, really nicely worded letter? 
Um, if he sends it, if he mails it in, um, that'll definitely improve his chances. <laughs> um, you know, but but we uh, we we scour the comment section of cycling tips um, a lot, and typically it's it's late n- at night, and I do everything I can not to respond, and I because uh, it's tempting. But no, I mean we. It's funny because when we brought our twelve speed ride, and not everyone. We had these comments. I don't need 12-speed, man. My 10-speed Maillard cluster shifts fine. And um, fast forward two years, the uh, comment section is is loud with, I wish they'd just make it 12-speed mechanical variant. So they do want 12-speed, it turns out. Um, but we continue to listen and look at what uh, what the market wants and you know, we've got to we've got to satisfy that somehow. So we we're looking at ways to uh, to fill that gap. I mean, kind of the follow up question there is is then how far down does access trickle from a price perspective? Like, are are we ever going to see? You know, you could buy you can buy a mechanical bike for thousand bucks, fifteen hundred bucks. Are we ever going to see electronic wireless get to that point? I mean, if you're if you're kind of stuck with the same electronics, which, you know, sounds like is basically the case, can't get too cheap, right? I mean, are we ever going to get fully down there? It'll be dynamo powered at that point, Kayla. You'll have to supply the power yourself. Right. <laughs> yeah. Um, so the current no comment. <laughs> <laughs> um, interesting, James. Uh, no, the, <laughs> I will say. Oh wait, wait, wait! I think I, I may have actually touched on something here. Wait, what are we talking the about? The current configure <laughs> the configuration that you know as access today or ETAP access, it won't go. I, I don't see it. How we can can create a group below this that's you know the same performance and feature set. Can an electronic group come out one below this? I think so. Can it be a thousand dollar bike? Probably not. Um, probably not now. And probably not while I'm still working at SRAM. Um, so that's quite a ways out. You know, I've learned a while ago to to not say never, but that's a long ways out. I don't know, Paul. I mean, you SRAMIs have a have a long long uh, staying power at that company. I mean, you say. <laughs> Not for as long as you're going to be at SRAM. I mean, that could be 15, 20 years from now. Thank, thankfully, we have a great work environment. And there are a lot of 20 and 25-year-old SRAMIs. So uh, I don't mean age that have been here that long. Rather. <laughs> um, uh, to, to Kaylee's point, though, I mean, it, it. even if you were to bring out some version, I mean, you said you were, you're all in on, on wireless and hydraulic. Let's just say you bring out an Apex access group, for example. Um, let's just say it trickles down that far. Even if it were to trickle down to Apex, I mean, it would still be more expensive than Apex Mechanical ever was, um, I, I would assume anyway. Uh, that leaves still a, a pretty big segment of the market that wouldn't be addressed by an electronic group set. So if, if SRAM is all in on wireless and hydraulic, doesn't that mean that SRAM is sort of making the conscious decision to kind of leave that, you know, kind of more lower end of the market alone with, you know, not a whole lot of development resources? No, I think that's where the, um, while we're all in on that, as I stated, we're not all out on mechanical. So we, you know, we haven't, we haven't given up on mechanical. And I think there's two things going on there. There's, there's a price point play and then there's 
what does a consumer want? And there's still a fair number of consumers that would pay probably not a premium, not red, uh, you know, not your your premium road bike today. They they want electronic on there. Um, but there is a subset of customers that want mechanical regardless of the price. And then there's an opportunity to serve the market with better performing mechanical product because it can be at a price. And we've got to look at both of those and, and figure out how we solve for that. So, um, you know, we want to continue to um, find solutions for the for the road bike market. I mean, if we just go in and make a copycat of a Tiagra or a 105 mechanical group, that doesn't serve anyone well. Um, we'd like to look at the way the market's changing and come up with solutions that, that solve the problems at those price points. So a dynamo-powered electronic group set. You heard it here first. I don't know. First. I'm pretty certain I didn't say a dynamo, but we can play that. We can play that back. Well, see, well, as we explained before we started recording, I mean, there is this magic of magical process called editing. So we'll just go ahead and 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 do like a deep fake of Paul Cantor's voice saying that they're going to do a dynamo-powered electronic group set in the future. Australian wheel created an electronic drivetrain with dynamo power. One thing that we haven't touched on yet uh, are e-bikes, because uh, regardless of what whatever people think about e-bikes, you know, for people listening, uh, it, it's more than safe to say that they are a an exploding category of bikes, and that includes uh, including on the roadside. So currently, all of SRAM's access stuff, I mean, all the the derailers uh, are powered by these removable, rechargeable batteries. Um, is there any reason, though, why that power couldn't come directly from the e-bike battery? Do we have to have just, you know, do we have to keep just adding more batteries or can we just power everything from that one big one? Yeah, so that's a great question, man. That, that's almost a, a podcast on its own. Um, so obviously the answer is no, you don't have to. Of course, you can. Our components draw very little power. They would have virtually no impact on your battery life of, of an e-bike. It has a massive battery in terms of what we need. Um, that said, we need the motor suppliers to be open to that. Uh, yeah, you have a canvas system where you can plug things into the motor. Um, but then there's also the complexity of executing on that. I think the mountain bike side of the business is a lot more mature in that regard. Uh, e-bikes there have, have really evolved into some pretty nice products now. Um, quite compelling. I think road... It has a long way to go. I, a lot of people still view a high-end or a mid to high-end road bike as being uh, sport, uh, training, that sort of thing. And are we not seeing the uptake on E happen as quickly yet? Um, and, you know, that's not, I don't even, I don't know if it'll happen, and I, I, but I'm not certain that it won't happen. I, I think it's coming in some form or fashion. I think maybe gravel bikes is more opportunity there as an entry point, and then we'll see how that matures. So as the bikes mature, we'll continue to evolve the, the component technology to, to fill these new, these new requirements. But to your point about batteries, yeah, yeah, those can be plugged in and in theory be simpler, but today the complexity of working across companies that have conflicting sort of desires makes it a bit hard. Right, because in other words, we're not going to see you know, Shimano, for example, offering a setup with their Steps e-bike system that allows it to be plugged, that allows that battery to be plugged into a SRAM 
access rear derailleur. That's probably safe to say that's not going to happen. Yeah, I, that that sounds pretty low likelihood. That particular scenario. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you know, bike industry doesn't do things like that. Most industries don't do things like that. <laughs> no, no, never. Yeah. Um, yeah. I guess I kind of I know I'm sorry to be jumping around a little bit, but I do want to ask a follow up question to to what Kaylee was was bringing up with the mechanical development. Um, I, I actually coincidentally I had posted something late last night. I posted a picture of like a Campagnolo Super Record mechanical uh, parts, and I kind of didn't really expect it to to elicit the flood of comments and opinions on on my feed as it did. Um, People are clearly really passionate about this, to say the least. Um, but a, a handful of people brought up the the kind of interesting idea that, like for watches, for example, I mean, it's pretty common now that we have smart watches or at least digital battery powered something or other. Um, but that said, all of those now exist together with these really high end mechanical watches that have kind of have kind of become more of like this kind of I guess sort of niche offering, sort of like a, a premium, almost like a status sort of thing. Is it possible that SRAM might be involved, might stay involved in a higher end mechanical setup in that sense? I mean, is it worthwhile at all from SRAM's perspective to, to do sort of a really high end mechanical setup, almost kind of more as a prestige item, as opposed to something that they expect would be adopted in mass? Yeah, we wouldn't certainly wouldn't rule it out. I think it's a great um, analogy. It, it is it's analogous to what we're seeing going on on, on road components and, and mountain for that matter. I think Campy, wow, what a storied brand. And, um, and the supporters of Campy are the most passionate. So it's not surprising to see um, a super record mechanical group that's, uh, that's just exquisitely made still have traction. Um, and if they want to see an alternative from a company like SRAM, we you know, would give that some serious thought. I'd be super clear it's not on the books today, um, but an interesting concept. Um, but then again, I go, if we were to make a really fancy bottle opener, would it feel as emotionally connected as the campy one? And I don't know that it would. So maybe that's a space that's better served by campy because of who they are and their history and our history is different. Kaylee, I think you're going to have to write some more letters. I know. I know. I have a deep emotional attachment to Red Twenty Two. I think I might be the only person on Earth, though. No, so. no. I mean, <laughs> no. I mean, several, a bunch of people on staff have Red Twenty Two bikes. I mean, Dave Rome, his personal Cannondale, is equipped with Red Twenty Two. Yeah, it's good stuff. I love it. I love it. I love the click. I, I think for me, I've said this before, but I think that for me, it was uh, when I was racing, and the the first double tap stuff came out. That was like one of my first sort of big new group sets. And I still love yeah. it to this day. That was when I was like 19 years old or something like that. So I, uh, I would say, Kaylee, first, I hope your cursive is, is legible. Um, <laughs> it's not. Uh, that, that's going to hurt your, your prospects there. But what a, gr what a great thing for a company and the development teams at SRAM to hear that someone has that connection. And say with the Campy uh, customers that have you know, their Colnago or their Decordi from the 80s that's built, they have that same emotional connection. So what a privilege to be part of the bike industry and have given someone that connection. And yeah, maybe we're moving on technology-wise, but, you know, still a great luxury and we'll, uh, we'll set some, some 
cassettes aside for you. <laughs> I'll I'll start hoarding and I'll be good to go. I mean, I, you know, I've got a, I've got a mechanical rim brake bike. Like I, I already know that I need to start hoarding or else I'm going to be totally screwed in about 10 years. So maybe less than that. <laughs> That's all good. I'm prepared for it. All right. Well, I, I dare say that if if SRAM or anyone else in the, in, in the industry relied on our crystal ball, that people would be making a whole lot of bad decisions because we would have, you know, Rival 24, Forest 24, Red 24, all in. It'd be great. Uh, that's maybe not the best move financially. But anyway, um, you know, we, we talk a lot about bike companies having to have these sorts of crystal balls. Um, and especially now with, with lead times being what they are with you know, kind of the international supply cycle. Um, but that crystal ball is really important in terms of reading trends and understanding what customers want, you know, several years into the future. Um, you know, SRAM does seem to have been really quite good at, at this whole thing. I mean, just, you know, you look at mountain bike drivetrains, for example, with the progression from three by two by one by, um, you know, wireless electronic technology, wider range road gearing, you know, these mullet setups, that sort of thing. Um, why is it that SRAM does seem to be able to react faster to these sorts of trends than Shimano? Oh, I, I, I wish we could react faster than we do, to be honest. I think we move well, it. We're giving you all these ideas, Paul. You just got to jump on them. <laughs> it's, just, <laughs> well, it's just getting through all the letters. Um, <laughs> just, you're just not set up for that. Um, no, I, I, I think, you know, we, we have a finite amount of resources and we have to be really targeted about where we, we aim them and make sure that they have a benefit for the market and, yeah, we run a business and has to make sense there too. Um, I, I, I think it's the company's filled with people that ride their bikes every day and, you know, they go out and have the same problems that any cyclist has, except they come back to the office and have the opportunity to solve the problem. And I don't, I don't know what other companies makeup is and, you know, it's all fine. But um, that's what SRAM's made of. And we've got great leadership and just fantastic creative people throughout the company that help, uh, you know, help us coalesce around, you know, what are the best problems to solve? And then, um, you know, I think what, like one by on, on Mountain, you start to hear people say, well, SRAM's a one by company. We're not a one by company or a two by company. We're like, what makes the most sense for that application? And if two by is the solution you need, we'll, We'll work really hard to make the best two-by solution. Um, and then talking out of the other side of my mouth at the exact same time, we see massive uptake on one-by, on, on road bikes. As bikes have become more capable, endurance road bikes and gravel bikes in particular, having a lot of energy, and we've created more range in the back, one-by is a great experience, fewer decisions to make. Um, so I, I think people like like using technology to make their life simpler. And, um, and that's what we're going to focus on having riders make fewer decisions and, um, that'll land us up fixing the problems that we, we choose to fix. Oh man. So it sounds like you're basically making easier gearing for people like me and you're taking decisions away for people like me that don't want to think anymore. And yeah, <laughs> this, yeah, uh -huh. it's a lot like us. We don't want to think anymore either. <laughs> I, I'm not, after the last year, Paul, I'm not really capable. Brain's pretty much done. Right. I'm, I'm super, I don't, we don't need to spend too much more time on this. We do need to wrap up some, somewhat soon, but I'm super interested in this forecasting thing because 
like James is right. You guys have been sort of ahead of the of the curve on a lot of this stuff. Like what is let's go back to one by mountain bike, right? That this is this is many years ago now, right? But you were you really pushed that forward and changed the entire market within the, the, the span of what a season or two and all of a sudden nobody was running front derailers and all of a sudden frames were coming without front derailleur mounts and all these other things like what did those early conversations look like were either of you part of those i realized we're talking mountain bikes yeah now. sure but like like how how much bef- how how long before we saw one by groups in mountain biking was sram talking about it internally oh quite i was fortunate enough to be on the periphery of that um, there was a different team that was driving it, but I was supporting in some aspects and I was focused very much on, on brakes at, uh, at that time. But um, the team that was working on that saw that coming for, for a fair amount of time. And, you know, people say, well, this is what you want to do on road bikes. And it's not because we solved the different problem set there. And I'm not going to give away our, our special source, as it were. But, I mean, if you think about the problems you're solving, people were designing well, we're ever improving suspension bikes. And then they would get to the end of the design and go, bugger, I have to put a front derailleur on it. Then they'd kind of slap it on somewhere and it didn't work great. And it impacted the way the suspension worked. So you started to aggregate all this feedback and think about how, as a drivetrain supplier, we could solve some of their problems. And then if we took out the front derailleur, well, what did that do? Um, You still had to climb up those hills. Uh, and then where were you going to make those compromises? And that team work, uh, worked super hard. It was rapid in, uh, a rapid succession of product. I mean, we went from two by, you know, that XX group into a one by very quickly um, because as soon as we brought out that high-performing two by group, it was clear that with the right gearing choices, you could uh, progress that to one by, and that would be a better experience. Um so there was a, there's a lot more behind that story, and it's that that alone is a fantastic story. But it, um, it was really about you know taking things out of the way. All right. So so Paul and Kate, peering into your magical crystal ball, what is next on the drivetrain front? Then say 10, 15 years from now, three by. <laughs> no. <laughs> I'll, I'll left-sided K- drivetrains left-sided <laughs> that'll solve all the problems i'll let kate go first i can't wait to see you know we have departments at sram that are always working on the you know the, the most wild ideas it's like willy wonka's chocolate factory you walk in and they present what they're thinking and you're like oh my god you, you thought to do that so i don't even think i have the ability to comprehend what what could be there in in 10 or 15 years um I, it's, I know it's going to be really, really cool what they come up with. Is, is, is SRAM's advanced development sort of like, you know, at the Imagineering people at Disney where there's no drug testing? Oh, <laughs> well, I don't know about that last bit, but it's, um, <laughs> <laughs> uh, you know, it is a fantastic group of people. Uh, the advanced development team is, is amazing. Their, their door actually says um, janitor's closet. So no one, when you're visiting, no one goes in. They're like, I'm not going in there. It's an amazing place. And then I'd also say, I, I want to be clear, though, there are incredible ideas that come throughout the company. You know, it could be customer service people are hearing the same problem. They go, I think we can fix this. Advanced development does do some heavy lifting in, in sort of big ideas and 
and ideation for big steps forward. And then there's a lot of ideas that come throughout the company. You know, we do exercises on what does the bike look like 10 or 15 years from now. I think what's more exciting is what does the bike look like in, in three to five years is continues to be super, super exciting. Um, and, you know, the plan is super robust and it results in a whole lot of podcasts. So it, it's going to be oh, fun. You should, you should just go ahead and tell us now, Paul. You should <laughs> go ahead and tell us. Yeah, well, what would you do with the rest of your year? I'm sure we could find something. I'm sure we could find something, some way to fill up the time. I appreciate those two answers, which which told us absolutely nothing. <laughs> well, no, it, it, it told me plenty, Kaylee, because if I ever go back to Storm HQ and I need to go find Kevin Wessling, then I'm going to go straight to the door that says janitor's closet. Wait, yeah, Paul. Yeah, now we know. Pretty smart now guys. They might just change the door or the sign. <sighs> I will give you one real answer, though. I think that... You know, we have seen the way that you can, um, that the, you know, technology and high-end bike technology is no longer strictly em like emulating what the, what the pros want and what the pros ride. You know, Kaylee, when you, you know, had that group set on your bike when you were 19 years old, you know, racing collegiate crits, like, was, you know, was that a, the type of bike that you would want to go do a, a five-hour ride on that you were, were comfortable and, and it was super capable and everything. So I think, you're seeing those those paths diverge where you um, can have really um, advanced uh, componentry and like the latest innovations, but it doesn't have to be exactly what you know what a pro is going to ride. And being able to embrace that um, that sort of duality, I think, is something happening on the drivetrain side, but also throughout the industry with brand manufacturers and and everyone else. So increased divergence, basically, between uh, you know. What the pros are riding and what we're riding. Here. I'm, I'm, I'm okay with that. Here, I'm here. Okay with that. I wish I, I wish it had come sooner. Right. <laughs> yeah. The, the term divergence makes me a little anxious, but yeah, I think we, you see a narrowing of like that pro, that pro need. And then what, what do the rest of us want to go ride when we're just thankful to get out of the house after living at work for a year? Well, I think that's, that's enough SRAM talk for today. Uh, thank you both for joining us on today's episode. Hope that our audience out there learned something. I'm sure you learned something actually. Uh, and we'll be back with another regular episode of the cycling tips podcast. Uh, sometime next week, by the time you listen to this, I will have a child. And so I won't be there. Uh, enjoy <laughs> Abby hosting, <laughs> enjoy Abby hosting the next episode of the podcast, probably last week's episode of the podcast as well. Uh, and yes, thank you to both of our guests on the SRAM pod this week. Bye, everybody. See ya.